Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have another mailbag episode for you. All of the questions during this episode were sent in through the contact form on our website or emailed directly to contact at beingwellpodcast.com. If you'd like to submit a question to be answered during a future mailbag, I'll include a link to our contact form in the description of today's episode. Today, we're going to explore a couple of questions that have to do with managing our relationship with ourselves, and particularly our tendency toward self-criticism of various kinds. So to help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. How are you doing? Excellent. Really glad to explore these topics with you, Forrest. Great. Yeah, looking forward to it. So we're going to start with a question that I thought was just a very lovely and sweet question when I first received it. Um, It's very poignant. It reads, I'm a 75-year-old man who received a diagnosis of autism a couple of years ago. My question is, what's the most productive way to deal with a life-changing diagnosis in one's life? And I think that for purposes of our conversation here, we can take diagnosis as really any kind of life-changing sudden event of that kind. Well, so I'll start small and then kind of build out from there. First, with regard to autism, as someone who's been in this territory as a clinician and psychologist for a while, I just want to raise a bit of an eyebrow or a yellow flag to just double check some things. So autism is understood to be really a spectrum. And I've watched an increase in both the recognition of this issue when it's real and also, frankly, in some quarters to be sort of loose with that diagnostic category even on the spectrum of it. So the so-called autism spectrum disorders, which include what used to be called Asperger's disorder, kind of high-functioning autistic tendencies. What's the distinction between someone who genuinely has Asperger's or someone who's, let's say, highly introverted, somewhat fussy and obsessive-compulsive and awkward around other people? It becomes kind of blurry. So I just want to raise the possibility about what this diagnosis actually means. Second, no one acquires autism or Mm -hmm. an autistic spectrum disorder late in life. The understanding is that these are genetically rooted conditions, certainly by the time a person is five or 10. It's pretty established. So it sounds more like an ongoing way of being has been labeled or connected to some sort of underlying view of oneself. So as context then, what do you do with the recognition, let's say, that quote unquote, I am a certain way. I'm a certain way that is edging toward full autism, let's say. Inherently, let's say, it's really hard for me to be empathic for other people. It's really hard for me to have a sense of them. I tend to be really rigid and inflexible. I'm very interested in objects. I'm easily overwhelmed, easily overstimulated. There might be some quirks and oddities of behavior that I'm particularly attached to that other people may, you know, raise their eyebrows at. I am a certain kind of way. Let's say, what do you do when you suddenly realize, oh, you know, I'm a certain kind of way. There was a time for me in my mid-20s when I learned through the personality system of the Enneagram that in that system, I was a seven, a social seven. I still am. That whole model actually describes me pretty well. 
But in the encounter with that, I was depressed for days mm. when I realized, whoa, I am this way. And being this way has cost me in a variety of ways. And I need to come to terms with it, including uh, what's connected to that particular personality pattern, my own narcissistic vulnerabilities, a topic that we've explored recently in this podcast. So it can be really quite powerful to face I am a certain way. And a psychological diagnosis is far-reaching compared to a physical diagnosis. In other words, if something's terribly wrong with my foot, that's a drag and it has lots of implications, but eh, in a sense, my foot is not me. But when you come to terms with or, or are recognizing or forced to recognize something about yourself psychologically, that pierces to the core of your being. So it's, it's heavy. It's really heavy. And I, I think it's normal and appropriate to acknowledge the heaviness, to feel it. Now, that said, we are not our diagnosis. Hmm. Our deep nature, our true nature, the core of our being grounded in our own biology alone. And maybe also, if you are open to this or think this way yourself, edging into something beyond our own biology, out into the mystery we, deep in the core of our being, are inherently wakeful, loving, contented, strong, and wise. That's our deep nature. Now, the expression of that deep nature may take the form of being a seven in the Enneagram system or take the form of being an introvert in my case or in your case, Forrest, a well-managed extrovert. Or it might take the form of being mildly or severely autistic. But deep underneath those expressions is a beautiful core, is a beautiful being. And we can take refuge in that and we can find comfort in that and not let our, our diagnoses define us. I think that's very, very important. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment and really quite touching. To enter into a couple of these things, the first one I would just like to also give a secondary support to this idea that the idea of being diagnosed with autism later in life is somewhere between an orange flag and a red flag <laughs> for me. I'll apply a slightly, slightly stronger language onto that than, than you did initially. I've got my eyebrows really raised at that one. Um, <laughs> they're because, hitting your hairline. Yeah, you they're know. definitely hitting my hairline because I'm just not quite sure how that works exactly. I mean, what you can do, of course, is is recognize traits that have been underlying conditions for a long period of time and just for whatever reason, quote unquote, escaped diagnosis. But what that means underlying is that, you know, to raise the obvious point, you are what you have always been mm -hmm. to an extent. Yeah. And that's a very different thing than somebody who gets diagnosed with, say, a terminal illness yeah. or somebody who gets hit by a car and will never walk again. You know, yeah. that is a real state change. And in terms of conditions like that, something that's been very kind of present in my thinking right now is that I've been reading uh, two books concurrently. They've both been focused essentially on the topic of death and dying. The first one is The Five Invitations by Frank Kostaseski. The second one is The Fruitful Darkness by Joan Halifax. We're actually going to be speaking to the both of them on the podcast fairly soon, so that's extremely exciting for us. And I think that this idea of um, teachings from kind of the big death that we'll all experience at some point in our lives can actually be taken into these little deaths that occur throughout our lives. 
you know, there will be a moment for all of us when we are no longer able to, to use an example from your life, dad, to rock climb. Mm. Or for me, there will be some point in the future where I will probably no longer be able to dance. That's kind of a little death, right? There's a, a mourning that comes with that. And I think that we can take some lessons around managing grief of various kinds and really apply them to this topic of these little deaths that occur throughout our life, large and small. So I just, I'm raising that as a general consideration and kind of a way to practice with it, for lack of a better way of putting it, to look at those moments as part of the, at the greatest, largest sense, the kind of irrevocable flow of time and our encounter with our own kind of fundamental impermanence, for lack of a better way of putting it. I just would finish maybe by saying that it can also sometimes be a relief Mm. when you get the diagnosis, as it were, that you're someone with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Mm. which Mm -hmm. I don't think of as a disorder, but it's really a, a marked kind of temperament. Or you get described. I think of it as a description. If it's if the shoe fits, wear it, right? Okay, you realize, oh, I am a duck. I always thought I was a poodle, but I'm really a duck. And you realize suddenly it can be a great relief that it's not my fault that I like to swim and I have feathers that fall out and leave a little mess on the floor. It's not my fault. It's what ducks do. I'm a wonderful duck. In that sense, it can be a relief for a person to have a bunch of dots get connected and you suddenly go, oh, okay high-functioning Asperger's. Mm. Oh, grounded in my own biology. I'm not neurotypical, as it were. I'm neuroatypical. And I need to deal with those neurotypicals over there. But frankly, they got to deal with me too. Mm. And that's not on me. That's partly on them. And it's okay that I'm this way. There's something kind of liberating that can occur. And I, the person who sent this in, I really invite you into that part as well. A kind of acceptance of oneself and coming to terms with that. If things suddenly start maybe making sense, then you start working around your own tendencies as myself, an introvert. And this is kind of a small example here, but I know that I will really do well if I have some opportunities for refueling and recharging after I've done a lot of things with other people before I step back into interacting with a lot of people again. I know that about myself. In a similar way, if you know that you're a duck instead of a poodle, you can, I don't know, make sure that you've got some places to swim. I think that's a lovely response and a really wonderful reflection and a nice place to probably close our conversation on that particular question. So the next question that we received, I have a tendency to wait until the very last minute when making decisions. I also often come up with reasons to avoid going to or participating in social situations and have some work-related difficulties, such as speaking up or taking professional risks. This weekend, I stayed back from a fun activity with family because I felt anxiety and some guilt for not being on top of things at home and work, and decided I shouldn't go. But then I felt bad for not interacting or participating in life. It feels like these various issues are related, and they have some common themes. What can I do to break through my fears around participating? Well, what really struck me was the role of anxiety. 
as mm-hmm. running through all of these situations. And it reminds me of a comment from my supervisor when I was going through training to become a psychologist. He said that much as, let's say, organized crime units follow the money, it's really useful when you're working with other people and working with yourself to follow the anxiety, mm. the thread of anxiety. That runs all the way through here. So what to do about it, right? I think as we've explored, Forrest, you and I, it's really useful to build up general resources. And there are a variety of wonderful resources for anxiety, in part because anxiety is so common. So a lot of good tools have been developed, like learning how to relax the body through progressive relaxation or other means, mobilizing the so-called relaxation response. It's helpful also to bring up a sense of strength inside that you're able to deal with challenges including strengths that I'll get to in a moment that are matched to the particular challenges that you're dealing with. It's also helpful to recognize that even while your mind is flashing red, 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 threat level orange, threat level red, blah, 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 actually, you're okay. Actually, it's not so bad. Actually, if you went to do that thing, there wouldn't be such a bad thing that would occur. You and I have written about paper tiger paranoia, where we're paranoid about tigers that are actually made out of paper and are not really, really, really going to hurt us. So you can develop the inner resource of accurate estimations of risks and threats and, and pain to come. Another wonderful resource that's very relevant for the social anxieties that also run like a thread through here, social anxiety, first is to appreciate how common social anxiety is. Mm. It's really common in the population. And often it has origins in childhood with kids who are slow to warm or who tend to be wary. They can form friendships, but they're initially wary. I think of the two kinds of kids in preschool. So in effect, one kind rushes into the middle of the room. Hey, I'm here. Where are my friends? The other kid, probably more like me going to preschool, walks through the door and immediately moves to the right to get a wall behind them where they stand and they watch for a while, but then gradually warm up to the situation. So there's a lot of um, research about early childhood behavioral inhibition, social anxiety that then has continuity into adulthood. So in terms of social anxiety, one, accepting that about yourself and appreciating common humanity, while also again and again and again, 10,000 times, 10,000 synapses or probably closer to 10 million synapses, again and again, internalize the felt sense of others who care about you. Mm. Internal allies, attachment figures, fairy godmothers, through repeatedly internalizing what I call the caring committee inside, then you have resources inside you can draw upon who will encourage you and soothe you when you're dealing with social anxieties of one kind or another. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. And we've, at this point, developed a reasonably deep catalog, an imperfect one, but a pretty deep catalog of episodes related to topics related to fear. And I do agree that a lot of this sounds very fear-based. The other quality, strength, condition that I would raise alongside this would be developing a feeling of agency. Mm. It feels like agency and anxiety are kind of the two major points here. How can I be more of a hammer in my life instead of a nail? How can I learn how to kind of step out and speak up? How would you do that in this case? How do you see agency 
being relevant here and, and how would you see yeah. this person developing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that it's a couple of things. The first is recognition of opportunity, seeing the moments where there's a chance to be agent. It feels like we're doing that here. The person describes, okay, I saw that there was this opportunity, mm-hmm. but I couldn't bring myself to move into it. And the reason for that might be that underlying anxiety that you were speaking to. But also it could just be a more existential feeling almost of having the moment where you're really going to take the reins over your own experience. And I'm not sure what I would recommend from a day-to-day practice standpoint to get yourself into a space where you felt more comfortable holding on to the reins. But I do think that having an internal practice associated around, I'm going to look for opportunities to do a thing and be brave in that moment and kind of be courageous and be agent and feel my own influence inside of my life. And I'm going to look for small moments first, little moments where I can choose one thing rather than choosing another thing. And I'm going to scale that up slowly to bigger and bigger moments where I kind of step out of my comfort zone and embrace the possibility of whatever might arise from that. And I do think that that could potentially be a useful practice for this person. That's very cool. Maybe I'll finish on this one with just two sort of concrete suggestions that I've used in my own life. One of them is to think of these various things in life, like work events or family situations or tasks that one is procrastinating. That's where the example began. Think of them as you're just going to run the experiment. Anxiety is very much about predictions Mm. about a future, including uh, worrisome predictions of a bad future. So moving more into a not knowing standpoint, don't know. I'm just going to run the experiment. I'm going to do the project and see what happens. I'm going to go to the family situation and see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to run the experiment and then see what reality's answer is. That is very freeing, actually. And you realize it just takes the burden off. that You have to figure it out or predict what's going to occur or evaluate it while it's happening. No, you just run the experiment and then see what the results are. The last concrete suggestion I'll offer in situations like this is to give yourself more room to just step into life. Mm. That's what I'm hearing a lot here is what's called behavioral inhibition. Mm. There's an inhibition. It's that kid who walks into the preschool classroom and then quickly slams on the bricks and, you know, puts their back against the wall, frozen sometimes in place. And I think there's a place in you know, to give ourselves permission to just step out into life. It doesn't matter so much. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's deeply, deeply true. You know, 100 years from now, Even 100 days from now, will it really matter? Almost everyone will have forgotten that you actually said that dumb thing in the meeting, maybe because you blurred something out, or whatever uncomfortable experience you might have had at the family gathering, (laughs) we'll have a hard time remembering. It'll be deep in the rearview mirror. So I think there's there's an oomph here for get off the fence, step out, you know, move out of the shallow end of the pool. This life to me, is like a huge park with nasty swamps in some places. I don't want to minimize that. But on the whole, wow, what an opportunity. And it's your life. It's no one else's life. Have your life. Step into it and kick some 
booty along the way. <laughs> so censoring yourself at the at the end there to preserve our iTunes rating. I appreciate our G that. Rating. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, not uh, not empowering me to go and bleep that part so that iTunes doesn't get mad at us. I think that's a great place to leave that question at. I think that's a pretty thorough treatment on it. So we're going to move on to a third and final question for this episode having to do with managing negative mood states. So the question is, I can get into moods for days where I feel very low and am susceptible to a lot of negative thinking. I'm not sure how to balance acknowledging these states when they're happening while also directing my thoughts away from resentment, upset, and critical observations about myself and others. This is particularly true when I'm around other people. And I wonder if there are steps I need to take to better assert and protect myself in everyday interactions with others. Yeah, really kind of feeling into this question and reflecting on it. My guess is that there's a real emphasis here, much as in the previous question, on the social framework or in the social triggers of psychological reactions of various kinds. So my hunch here is that some of these low, very low mood states have to do as the fallout from interactions with other people. So I want to speak to that first. One very, very real option when it's true is to think about the people you're with. Mm -hmm. And this is not a psychological fix. This is an environmental fix where you reach out into the world around yourself. Ask yourself, what does it feel like to be with the people in your life? Various people. Do you feel larger or smaller mm. when you are around them? Do you feel encouraged or discouraged? Do you feel better about yourself or worse about yourself? And that's the real essence of things. And it's interesting. It doesn't always have to do with the overt behavior of the, some other people. I've been around people who were superficially praising, and yet I didn't feel good or better about myself when I walked away. I've also been around other people who are kind of gruff. They're, they're not all touchy-feely, West Coast, everybody loves everybody, whatever that stereotype might be. And yet I trusted them and I felt good about them and I felt enlarged time and again after being with them. That's the real bottom line question. So one thing to really think about is disengaging from some extent, as you can, to the extent that you can, or bounding, or as I put it, shrinking the size of your relationship when you can with those that don't feed you and don't lift you up, while also looking to grow realistically, as you can, your relationships with people who do help you feel better about yourself. So that's one thing I want to say that's real. Second, it can really help, especially if you're sensitive and I, I mean that in a very neutral way, not as a criticism. Uh, this person just probably is someone whose boundaries between themselves and others are very permeable. And maybe as well, which often goes together, internal boundaries are permeable such that stuff can very readily bubble up from the bottom. For myself, I can imagine almost like a force shield around myself or that there's a wall of glass, even thick glass, like one foot thick glass between me and others or that I'm seeing them through the wrong end of a telescope very far away. Or in your mind, turn off the volume. Imagine that their mouth is moving, but you can't hear a sound 
or you're observing them as if looking at them in a black and white movie. Whatever you might do, help yourself have a greater sense of boundaries between you and them. What do you think about all this so far? Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think that there are kind of multiple questions inside of this question and we're we're unpacking them in some order. The first one is what you've already addressed, which is how do I kind of increase my barriers with other people? The second question might be, how can I extract myself from a negative mood once I'm in one? To spend a few moments with that, one of the topic areas that we haven't treated quite as thoroughly, I would say, on this podcast so far is actually negative mood states, including something like full-on depression. We're either going to do an episode on that in the near future, or we have already done an episode on that, depending on when this episode gets kind of posted in our sequence. But it's definitely something that I want to do because I think it's a big question. We haven't treated it as thoroughly on the podcast so far. As a basic recommendation, I think that the simplest piece of advice, typically, of extracting yourself from a negative mood state begins, I think, with acknowledging the negative mood state. Yeah. Yeah, the person in the question is kind of saying, I'm not sure how much time I should spend acknowledging this mood or if I should kind of push away my acknowledgement of it because when I acknowledge it, I tend to beat myself up about it. Well, kind of conversely, I would almost always argue that exiting a mood almost always begins with acknowledging that you're in that mood. If you are angry, as we had a great conversation with Professor Galen Ferguson recently, where he said something to the effect of the first part of exiting fear is acknowledging that you're fearful. Mm. The first part of exiting anger is acknowledging that you're angry. I think the same thing for sadness and other negative Mm. moods. Just being with the reality of that and the truth of your experience inside of that state, I think can be a powerful way to start working with it. Yeah. So that's the first piece of advice that I would give. The second piece of advice that I would give is then match that by applying self-compassion to yourself our natural tendency is going to be to move into self-criticism. We've had a couple of great episodes on the practices of self-compassion, most notably with Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. I would recommend you to both of those for some concrete practices of self-compassion. And then by starting to look for more positive mood states outside of yourself, ranging from how it feels good to drink your cup of tea Mm. to the smile on the face of somebody you like, to just walking outside and being under the sun a little bit if that's possible for you based on where you are in your environment. I think that those are all good encouragements to uh, extracting oneself from a negative mood. That's great for us. You ought to be a therapist. <laughs> maybe one day, maybe one day I'll get there. <laughs> maybe you are already. Just, uh, just deep in my heart, maybe. The, the licensing board might you, have something to say no, about you're that. you're just retaining but... your amateur status. Yeah, that's right? it, that's, that's it. it. I don't that's want to compete it. as a professional. No, yeah. That's deeply true. That's really good. Yeah, to, um, to kind of expand on this, there's sort of a third thing here that is in reference to something that I've been actually toying with a little bit myself. So we have that idea of increasing our boundaries with other people. Then we have that second idea of how do we extract ourselves from a negative mood. Then there's this third idea, which is how do we develop a sense of self that is strong enough so we don't feel as battered by others, even if our boundaries with them are relatively quote-unquote normal. So I guess maybe another way to ask this question is how do people who don't have wide boundaries with others, who don't push other people away, how do they do that? How do they do that while preserving their sense of self? And I can certainly see this inside of my own friend group. There are some people who have no real boundaries with others and not a particularly strong sense of self. 
And that's almost always a recipe for disaster. Then there are people who don't have a very strong sense of self and they medicate that by having really thick boundaries. Then there are people who have a strong sense of self and that allows them to have relatively small boundaries with others. And, you know, I think that you can make reasonable arguments for these different conditions as as having their own benefits and downsides. But I would imagine that most of us would like to get to a place where we could have pretty normal boundaries with other people, be able to be in close, intimate relationship with them, and also not feel threatened ourselves by their natures around us. I think that that's a big question. How do you develop a strong sense of self? Mm. I'm not sure if we have the time and the space right now inside of this mailbag to treat such an enormous question, but I would just raise it as the third aspect that underlies this question altogether. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I thought what you said was great. And Mm. maybe to finish up on this question and perhaps this episode, I would like to just kind of add three really specific suggestions. Great. Uh, First is to really pay attention to your body. Mm. Uh, There's often a physiological basis for slumps in mood. And if a person is having recurring drops of mood, maybe not to fulfill the full criteria for a clinical episode of depression, but still a kind of slump, think about your Diet, your sleep, uh, the sort, the factors around you, your hormones up and down, or maybe just kind of some underlying vulnerability in your neurochemistry. That's an important thing to pay attention to. And also some health issue. Maybe there's an infection in your GI tract or some dysbiosis. There's a lot of research these days about the relationship between the microbiota. We've got about 100 trillion cells in our body, and there are 100 times of a hundred times as many probably microbes inside us, several quadrillion microbes inside us, just living with us for better or worse, many of them in the gut. So perturbations in the populations of those microorganisms in the GI tract can actually affect mood. So check that out. Second, when I really, really listen into this question, I'm reminded of what's called mindfulness-based approaches to depression. And ones in which it's really found that a lot of what causes depression is reactions to depressive feelings or thoughts or self-criticism. And the alternative is simply to witness them while rested in a spaciousness of awareness. Just that alone can often make a big difference because just to name it, you and I, Forrest, especially me, I think, just professionally, so I'm going to take this on myself here, are, tend to be performance-oriented, procedural. So in this these podcasts, we're talking about things people can do. That's our orientation, to be well or be well-er. All right, there's a place for that. But as valuable as actions can be, because we're just listing a whole bunch of things people can take action about, it can also create feelings of failure. When you don't mm-hmm. perform well. Yeah, totally. Or you're not able to sustain it. Or it just seems too overwhelming. Oh my gosh, I just don't want to add one more item to my to-do list. I'm already overwhelmed, right? And this can really happen for people who are vulnerable to depressed mood. So these methods that are mindfulness-based, where you simply be with the feelings, with a lot of sense of, of spacious awareness and a disengagement. You're not resisting these thoughts, these negativistic thoughts or these 
these blue moods. You're not resisting them, but you're not feeding them. You're not following them. You're mainly just resting in awareness. That's very powerful. And there's some been major work in this territory, sometimes called cognitive mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for you know depression. Zindel Siegel, John Teasdale, and Mark Williams have done a lot of groundbreaking work in that territory. The last suggestion is to really, really look at Paul Gilbert's work on compassion-focused therapy. Paul is a world-class academic in England, in Derby. I believe the town is pronounced the University of Derby, spelled, as we say in the colonies, Derby. And Paul is a jewel. Paul's fantastic. The work is fantastic. I really encourage people to check it out. And as I listen into what this person is saying here for us and kind of where they're coming from, they just sound like a lot of people that Paul talks about and has developed ways of helping. So check out Compassion Focused Therapy, which is a form of therapy that uh, Paul has trained a lot of people in. Great. I think that that's a ton of great advice. And Really a good note for these podcasts as a whole, we do tend to be very prescriptive and very kind of action-oriented. And I think that it can be, certainly for a subset of people, maybe even a very large subset of people, really easy to see that whole list of actions and immediately move into self-recrimination around, well, why haven't I done this before? Or why is this hard for me? Or whatever else. So of course, as always, be kind to yourself and take the mental approaches that you need to take in order to maximize the value that you can get from any kind of a teaching orientation. So I think that's a good place to end this podcast. We explored three different questions over the course of this episode, which all kind of had to do with our relationship to ourselves. The first one was about managing a later in life event, a diagnosis, a painful life event, something like that. How can we relate to it more effectively? The second one had to do with finding agency in your life and moving through experiences of anxiety, particularly social anxiety. And the third and final one had to do with managing negative mood states, including our relationship with other people, how we can broaden our borders with them, or perhaps how can we fill ourselves up with more so that those borders don't have to be quite so big. If you would like to send in a question to be answered on the podcast, I'll be including a link to our contact form. In the description to today's episode, that's just on the main podcast webpage. Just scroll down a little bit. Contact form is right there. You can also email us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. I'd also like to remind you about Dr. Hansen's new online NeuroDharma program. Registration for the program remains open. If you would like to learn more about it, you can follow the link in the description of today's podcast. And finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would subscribe to it and leave a rating and review through the platform of your choice, hopefully a positive one. It's really one of the best ways for the podcast to reach more people. And if you're interested in supporting us, that's really the way to do it. So next week, we will come back with another full-length episode. But until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.